So those are the administrative details, and I will now proceed to uh, offer the land acknowledgement. We want to uh, acknowledge that we are here on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the new credit First Nation. We also acknowledge the presence of other indigenous nations who now call this territory home. The Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. For the benefit of those who are connected to the internet, the city clerk is this is planning through land acknowledgements. If say we, like, whatever, you give back all the crown land, you working on the rest of it type of thing, but then like realistically, the rest of us aren't going to leave, you know, like it's not going to be only indigenous people living here now. And so building some relationship to the land, acknowledging yourself as a settler but still having that like I kind of struggle with that myself like how do I build a relationship to the land that I think is home or whatever where my mom was born type of thing without being like weird and culturally appropriative about it you know like without cultural culture vulturing that's where kind of where I struggle um, because I don't have a connection to other places like I don't have a connection to where like my my heritage or whatever and so I that's like kind of where I run up against it personally and building that like cultural relationship to it. I always like I always knew this moving here made it really apparent that like the ocean is where I need to be a lot of the time. Yeah. If I'm not near water, I get very antsy. <laughs> and it's weird because you can't really tell that there's water in Toronto. Yeah. Like you live close to me. Like if you go down to exhibition, it's like weird exhibition land and then it's lake and you're like, where what am I doing here? Where am I? <laughs> Medieval Times is right there. Like, what is <laughs> Orbs on the water. Yeah, yeah. Super weird, super weird place. For our first real episode, I got to sit down with a fellow planning student at York. We picked up some of the double-think that happens when certain people or institutions include land acknowledgements in their repertoire of public management. We also talked about the differences between land acknowledgements performed in Toronto versus in BC, and how the content of these statements can have different effects or meanings, even though they share the same general structure. And we talked about land back, a phrase that has been repeated in anti-colonial movements across Canada to reference the necessity of the Canadian government to recognize Indigenous land titles and treaty rights, as well as return land to the stewardship of Indigenous people. This student agreed to speak with me at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're recording. It says we're recording. Okay. So I asked some of the people I interviewed to watch a video produced by the Center for Aboriginal Student Services at York before we sat down to talk. The video features several people from the York community talking about the purpose and substance of land acknowledgements. This video was an impetus for this podcast project because of the many important points made in the video, such as giving a more in-depth explanation of the dish with one spoon wampum belt, referencing the disruptive power of land acknowledgements, and reiterating the responsibilities outlined by the statements. So a link to this video uh, can be found in the notes for this episode. The student I spoke to was shown the video in a political science class she took last year. Um, our very first day, the prof did a land acknowledgement and she kind of acknowledged also that she was embarrassingly new to like considering Indigenous people and like land questions in her work. And so we did basically like a whole class on this video and like what it meant. Some people just talking about like how they didn't really how they hadn't heard land acknowledgements that often or like didn't really understand what they were if you weren't from Toronto or you weren't from Canada like didn't really 
like you didn't know what it meant type of thing. But I like the video because then they talk about like whose responsibility it is to be doing the land acknowledgement and like honoring your obligations as part of it. I think in the context of the class, it became uh, much more apparent like during the semester because it was also like the syllabus was quite heavy on like anti-colonial work and everything like that. So I think it became more apparent like as the term progressed, like what it would mean to be kind of um, engaging with what a land acknowledgement would be and like what it meant to plan, like do planning um, in the like colonial context. Oh, yeah, I also really like the point about the like when they send the video that it's like a politically correct thing like you say it because you can like check the box and not because like you have a relationship with the land like that or like that you're interested in forming one like it's not really related to like you'll have the land acknowledgement and then like do something completely like unrelated or unsupportive of it. This last point comes up several times both in the video and in many of the interviews I conducted. People spoke about the frustration and dismay they feel when land acknowledgements are treated like a quote checkbox or a political tool, as Amy Desjardins states in the video. Since land acknowledgements have become so ubiquitous, showing up at events, in email signatures, and on plaques, many of the advocates for the statements have questioned whether the way we're engaging with the history of Canadian land theft truly registers. Throughout working on this project, I have asked what makes a land acknowledgement take on a larger presence than a checkmark. I could also ask the reverse question. What turns a land acknowledgement into a checkbox? Several people in the video state that it is the speaker who controls the way in which a land acknowledgement comes across. This is as opposed to the content or the text of the acknowledgement itself being the source of its roteness. The student I spoke to stated that in her class, It was generally agreed upon that they're not perfect, but they're better than not doing it. Much of what the student talked about revolved around the lessons or responsibilities laid out in land acknowledgements. There is a clear sense that as a part of the process of reconciliation or decolonization, land acknowledgements are a good first step towards recognizing what ought to be talked about openly and then acted upon. The sheer lack of action taken in spite of the land acknowledgement did not escape her. Like if you if you are going to acknowledge whose land it is, and then you're going to acknowledge that like you're like you're fine with it being stolen and not being returned. Like if you're acknowledging whose land it is and that it's stolen, then the logical step beyond that is like land back if it's even if it's like a if it's like a progressive institution or whatever like if york is making this big deal about like making a video of it and everything but then you come up against the like okay and then what and no one's going to be like oh we're going to surrender our title or whatever you want whatever it would be you know i just want to add here writ large i haven't heard from indigenous people who say land back that settlers are like supposed to go back to england or france or wherever there seems to be a concerted effort on the part of Indigenous people talking about land claims to address this semi-hysteric and bad faith take on the complexities of land back. Taking my cue from Indigenous activists working on decolonizing this whole mess, I take this phrase to mean the Canadian state stepping back from its entrenched position of cutting off Indigenous people from the land. This may mean the little return of land, but also rethinking relationships to land and for settlers, purposefully sitting with our ties to settler colonialism and unknotting those strands inch by inch. It can mean flipping the governmental construction of land ownership in Canada, which is something I'm going to get into in a bit, and it can be redefining ownership itself. I've linked a few articles below that highlight Indigenous voices on this topic, as I don't want my own thoughts on this to be the only ones you hear if this is new to you. Well, I think a big part of it would also be like, like the way she talks about it in the video where she's like um like the difference between it being like a politically correct thing and like a like a everyday relationship that's had with the land like I think in the terms of it to like 
settler society being like a political thing, then the technical transfer is important because that's what we would recognize, you know what I mean? Like the concept of like ownership, but then in the long term, you'd have to kind of like completely shift how you think about, well, everything would have to change. Like there's so many things that would have to change, but just like the way we think about like ownership and responsibility and um, even like property, like in my research, we're reading a lot about like property rights um and just like we think about property like private property only like get off this is mine exclusion only but there's also like other readings of it where it's like property is about responsibility and like um and it's like about relationships it's not about the land itself like it can be about the land itself it's also about like relationships to other people in relation to the land like how can we expand our understanding of like property and responsibility beyond like the idea of just like exclusion and exploitation. Many of the land acknowledgements done in urban settings that have a bit more thought put into them note the importance of creating a relationship with the land. Perhaps it's easier to understand what that means when we talk about pipelines or tar sands or uranium mining, which are all things that take place usually outside of a large city and in more secluded, far away setting. But cities are always kind of sticky when it comes to talking about building relationships with the land. And then, as mentioned, relationships to other people in relation to the land. So one of the jobs I managed to get my grubby little paws on this summer was a data entry and analysis job. The task was to digitize the Indian treaties and surrenders documents, which detail the quote surrenders and the quote treaties made between 1690 and 1903. I was then to figure out a process to map out each of these land transfers and create polygons or rough sketches of the areas, which could then be layered on top of one another and then onto a map in order to animate the progressive loss of indigenous land to crown claims. If you've ever seen that gif of Native American land loss in the area known as the United States, that's basically what this project is trying to accomplish. At its core, that treaty mapping project shows the violent birth of the Canadian state. This process included sometimes painstaking detail, as land surrenders were sometimes like 67 one hundredths of an acre, or one half of the lot adjacent to a tree that definitely no longer exists. Nonetheless, the repetitive action of typing in entry after entry of, quote, provisional surrender part of township by Chippewa Indians inevitably followed up by confirmatory surrender part of township by Chippewa Indians really painted a picture of what this land, all of it, including downtown Toronto, used to look like. Urban development often blots out history. For most, it is probably difficult to try to imagine Young Street as having ever been anything other than a paved road. If we can stretch our minds back further, we may be able to imagine it as a dirt path that functioned as a main thoroughfare for the nascent Toronto. But as a 2018 video entitled Land Acknowledgements Uncovering an Oral History of Toronto, narrated by Sarah Rock and Selena Mills states, Streets such as Young and Bloor started out as deer paths, where the animals would wade through tall grasses in search of water. Hunters would follow and further trample down the grasses. Following the path of least resistance, others would follow, until it soon became a pretty good place to rest for the evening or how about set up that shop. Those shops became buildings, and the buildings precipitated the development of the road. Thus, the bustling avenues we know today have always been tied to their original roots, the land. This can of course be wielded in an apolitical way if the intent is to cover up the genocidal elements of settler society development, but it nonetheless serves the purpose of revealing that we are not separate from the land just because we can't see it. Each and every time we dig, there it is. Every time a red-tailed hawk soars by, there it is. Same goes for raccoons, goldenrod, 
lake water, and downy woodpeckers. Despite the efforts of bulldozers and cranes, the land remains steadfastly present. So what would it mean to build a relationship to one another in relation to the land? And how do land acknowledgements fit into this picture? I've been thinking a lot about something the student said in particular that struck a chord with me, both because it references a lot of the fears I have going into the planning field, and also because I think she's getting at something pretty endemic to this goal of being in a tripartite relationship. She states, I've been like thinking about and reading about the divide between planning as like an academic field and planning as like a profession. Planning as a profession can just veer off into like all these technical fixes to things. Physical determinism, I think it's called, where like, oh, if we just design this nice, everyone will be happy. But even then, it's like you're planning for the like quote unquote public good, but the public is against someone always. Like there's always like the other that is planned against. Yeah, there's planning, but then there's also like infrastructure planning and um, all the things that our urban city planning depend on to be maintained. And so my cynical opinion is that all of these uh, like progressive, whatever, radical understandings of planning kind of just evaporate when you go out into the workforce and you try to get a job and it's for some shitty consulting firm and all you do is plan the like private road for the condo now, you know? So yeah, pretty unnerving to hear that others are vocalizing this worry about the long-term efficacy of the progressive principles infused through planning classes, given that there is a diametrically opposed system under which we'd serve as planners. I think this also serves an, as an apt point of comparison for talking about the stated purpose of land acknowledgements. Similar to how progressive principles in a planner might be assumed to have an impact on the work they're able to do, Land acknowledgements have been constructed to serve an importantly decolonial purpose, but also similarly how progressive planners face a number of challenges, including having to compromise their principles as provincial or municipal planners when they are unable to push for socially conscious policies. Land acknowledgements, as they are performed in a system which prioritizes drilling and mining and land theft, will only be effective up to a certain point. What these progressive principles and land acknowledgements reveal is that the relationships we form with the land and with each other become the most meaningful when we actively work against extractive reasonings like capitalism and settler colonialism. Despite my wildest, most desperate dreams, capitalism is not going to be defeated overnight. That is to say that the systems that render progressive principles into weird quirks will continue to have the effect they have on land acknowledgements. But this doesn't mean we should then turn around and declare the whole thing pointless because capitalism still exists. Not only is that definitely not a settler's right, land acknowledgements are quite clearly still important. As stated by some of the folks in the Center for Aboriginal Student Services video, Land acknowledgements are an important first step in the conversation of decolonizing this land, referred to as Canada. This led me to be curious as to what makes land acknowledgements impactful for my interviewees. I generally like ones that like do the land acknowledgement and then do it a little more in depth. Like if there's a treaty, they'll kind of explain or they'll like highlight obligations in the treaty that are relevant to what's happening at that event or whatever, like something like that, or that present like actionable items for this time, you know, like present an action that you can do beyond that. 
One of the most important differences between Toronto and BC is that BC is unceded territory, meaning that there are very few, if any, treaties between Indigenous people and the Canadian government, despite the presence of one of the country's largest cities. The student I interviewed talked about some of the land acknowledgements she'd heard in BC. I think they might have been doing them for, like, I think they may be more, have been more popular for a little bit longer than here, but I'm not sure. That's just kind of like the vibe I get, but um, they were different because all, basically all, like all of BC is unceded territory. And so there's more of like a slant to it. Like it's very clear cut that it has never been ceded. There's no treaty governing this. Um, this is stolen land. And so kind of depending, but like different people would frame that differently, obviously. Like if you're going to like a talk at school um, and it's like an indigenous presenter, they might go more in depth. Or it's also interesting to see like people that are not from that territory that will still do land acknowledgement and then acknowledge the land that they are from. And then also that they're like a guest on this land. What that woman said in the video about, um, like, that's like, you wouldn't do land acknowledgement if you weren't from the, from the place. Some places would have more of an emphasis on, like, the unseated element and some would just, it was still very much take the box overwhelmingly. So it's not that different, really. It's very much that, like, we're grateful to be guests on this territory and, like, live, work, and it's like, the, we're happy to be able to, like, live, work, and play on the territory as guests. Because there's no treaty and because there's lots of different like overlapping nations for territory, they will like get it wrong a lot of the time. Because there's kind of like three that are like they cover most of Vancouver, but if you go a little bit east or a little bit north, it's like a different nation. But then they like wouldn't know that, and so you acknowledge the wrong people, <laughs> and so you're like not really acknowledging the land itself, and you're acknowledging the wrong people. And when you do it, so it's even worse. There, I felt a little bit more of like an urgency about it. Is you would be like, yeah, like we're admitting this is the unceded territory of the Musqueam to just to be like, okay, yep, it's unceded and we stole it and that's fine. Versus in Toronto, I feel there's more of like a, we're honoring this treaty that we like definitely broke like a million times and we're not going to talk about that. And so I think if we are like as part of reconciliation, quote unquote, however you, whatever you think that is, then you would definitely have to be moving beyond uh, just saying whose land it is actually like acting on that in terms of like, like there's been a lot of land about, like land back has been a big thing during the, um, why am I blanking on the name of this? The rail blockades? Yeah. Like yeah. in the last like month or so even, it's been more of like a, like a mainstream, not mainstream, maybe, I don't know what my idea of mainstream is, but like more in the public eye of like what reconciliation would have to be to be anything meaningful and so i think talking about like like it's all going to be it's all about land at the end of the day and so the land acknowledgement is like the first step but it's definitely not sufficient perhaps because toronto is seen as a quote valid purchase via treaty 13 the content of the land acknowledgements presented in this region don't hold as much urgency as those in areas that are more frequently viewed as unseated as one of the interviewees in a later episode mentions, however, the Toronto Purchase was, and still is, considered by many Indigenous people and historians as a, quote, swindle. As noted by Stephen Marsh in his 2017 article, Canada's Impossible Acknowledgement for the New Yorker, the land which includes Toronto was, quote, purchased in 1787 for, quote, 2,000 gun flints, two dozen brass kettles, ten dozen mirrors, two dozen lace hats, a bale of flannel, and 96 gallons of rum. The British government officially purchased the land for an additional 10 shillings in 1805. Also taking into account the fact that many treaty negotiations were conducted through translators working in the language spoken by the people in the area, and in French, and then in English, with the context being wrung out with each translation, many treaties are often thought of as illegitimate, 
Even further, Canada historically has made efforts to cut off Indigenous peoples' connections to surrounding resources and drain any potential long-term stability without governmental assistance. This continues today. For this reason, the treaties are also considered to be signed under duress, and therefore doubly, if not triply, illegitimate. I want to dig a bit more into this for a while, as it's central to the project, but I didn't have the opportunity to really clearly discuss it in the interviews. In October of 2019, the Yellowhead Institute at Ryerson published a red paper entitled Land Back. And red paper refers back to the original 1970 red paper, which was published by the Indian Association of Alberta in response to Canada's 1969 white paper. And just a note, if you want to learn more about the red and white papers because you are like me and you didn't know any of this really important history, the aforementioned Unsettling Canada by Arthur Manuel and Grand Chief Ronald M. Derrickson does a really solid job of outlining what these papers were about, as well as the cultural and political context around their releases. I won't get into it here because of limited time, but I've included this book as well as all all of the resources mentioned, including the Yellowhead Institute's report in the notes for this episode. Okay, so the Yellowhead report, entitled Land Back, focuses on Indigenous land dispossession in Canada through a discussion on extractive industry and Indigenous consent. This seminal report explores the history of colonization in North America and examines the, quote, infrastructure of theft. While treaties were negotiated between some First Nations and the British Crown, the understandings of the true meaning behind these treaties differed dramatically. The report states, quote, To First Nations, these were sacred and honorable agreements that did not include the possibility of surrender. However, these treaty territories have been interpreted by Canadian law as alienated lands under the jurisdiction of provinces. Indigenous nations and bands who did not sign treaties have also been presumed to live under Canadian law on Crown lands, despite the fact that they did not, quote, alienate their lands under the provisions of the Royal Proclamation, end quote. And that's on page 17 of the report. The insidiousness of this last sentence is more clearly outlined in Supreme Court Justice McLaughlin's remarks on the Silcoteen Nation versus British Columbia case in 2014. Quote, the content of the Crown's underlying title is what is left when Aboriginal title is subtracted from it. I'm pausing because that still needs to sink in for me. This is what I mentioned earlier when I was talking about land back. Land back can mean that if we continue under Eurocentric understandings of land ownership, Crown land claims should be subtracted from Aboriginal title. The Tsilkota Nation versus BC case established that provinces must engage in meaningful consultation when planning, in particular when clear-cutting on land protected under Aboriginal title. It does not, however, mean that the Aboriginal title holder has to consent to any activity on the land, just that the province must be able to show that it engaged in a consultation process. And the Crown can overrule any opposition from title holders if they say that the development or activity is in the public interest. Meaningful Engagement consultation process, public interest. There is no dictionary definition for these terms. These vagaries are what keep the economy of extractive industry alive on Indigenous land. The Yellowhead Report goes into detail about alienation of Indigenous communities from their lands and clarifies the difference between Aboriginal rights, treaty rights, and Aboriginal title. These terms were invented in the courts to further expand on and whittle away the true intent of Section 35 of the Constitution, which states, quote, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed." End quote. The First Nations and Indigenous Studies program at the University of British Columbia states on their Indigenous Foundations website that Aboriginal title refers to, and this is a long quote, the inherent Aboriginal right to land or a treaty, 
the Canadian legal system recognizes Aboriginal title as a sui generis, or unique collective right, to the use of and jurisdiction over a group's ancestral territories. This right is not granted from an external source, but is a result of Aboriginal people's own occupation of and relationship with their home territories, as well as their ongoing social structures and political and legal systems. As such, Aboriginal title and rights are separate from rights afforded to non-Aboriginal Canadian citizens under Canadian common law." End quote. Aboriginal rights and treaty rights were, according to the Yellowhead Report, quote, dealt with as activity-based rights, and treaty rights being activity-based rights on treaty lands. And here's another quote. Aboriginal title is the only Aboriginal right to the land itself, and it comes with incidental rights to govern, manage, and enjoy economic benefits. And that's on page 18 and 19 of the Yellowhead Report. It is important that people understand what these rights guarantee, as well as what's missing from them. There are many caveats set up by the Canadian government in order to defang them as much as possible. For example, Indigenous land can only be sold to the Crown, as outlined in the Royal Proclamation of 1763. The Crown must negotiate the terms if Aboriginal title holders want to sell to a third party, i.e. someone other than the Crown. While this may have been set up to affirm the nationhood of Indigenous groups, it instead renders these title holders as wards of the state. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, states that Indigenous people have the right to free, prior, and informed consent. In 2017, the Canadian government published Principles Respecting the Government of Canada's Relationship with Indigenous Peoples, in which 10 commitments for nation-to-nation -nation discussions were laid out. Despite noting UNDRIP's declaration, Canada does not recognize free, prior, and informed consent as defined by the UN. It instead states that Canada is bound by law to uphold Section 35, meaning that meaningful engagement is therefore mandated whenever the government may seek to infringe on a Section 35 right. And that's a quote from the Principles Respecting the Government of Canada's Relationship with Indigenous Peoples document. As stated in the Yellowhead Report, quote, while the Principles, and by extension the Crown, recognizes UNDRIP, they are not prepared to recognize even the UN's notion of state-sanctioned free, prior, and informed consent. Okay, so let's zoom back out for a second. This project is about land acknowledgements in planning. On one hand, we're looking at land acknowledgements potentially as a tool to push the conversation around land theft and decolonization into people's minds every time we gather, and hopefully beyond that as well. On the other hand, we're considering how the responsibilities outlined in land acknowledgements, including but not limited to recognizing the historic and ongoing injustices done to Indigenous people, can be enacted in planning by planners. It is extremely important to talk about things such as free, prior, and informed consent, Aboriginal and treaty rights, and the history of land as it was turned into property. Planning is, after all, a way of ordering people on land, and if the land we're talking about is stolen or forcibly taken, these historical facts have to enter the equation. The effects of colonialism are wide-reaching and multi-tentacled. As an unjust and violent system of oppression, Understanding what it looks like in theory and then in practice should be a top priority for any planner looking to plan equitably and responsibly. As they show up at the beginning of planning policy documents and at the beginning of city council meetings, land acknowledgements remind us of our responsibilities. Rather than making the land acknowledgement this umbrella that has to include everything, rather than that being like our one shot, keeping the land acknowledgement as like a, like a, even like a, having ceremonial elements is fine. Like that's, that's 
good. So we just like acknowledge that the land acknowledgement is very ceremonial and it's like at these events and then expanding the work around land acknowledgements or even like the treaty obligations that we have here. How can we bring those to the forefront of conversations outside of just the events where there's land acknowledgements, you know what I mean? So I think rather than like change the land acknowledgement, expanding points of entry for like talking about indigenous sovereignty and land. I think I'm really distracted by the function of the land acknowledgement. Yeah, like if it's supposed to be like a greeting. Yeah. Sometimes it is, or if it's... Um, do you know where they, like, do you know, not where it started, but like where or when it became like mainstream for like settlers to do it? Yeah, so the TRC report the in 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, of Canada. There's a comma in there. So their report that came out in 2015 had like a whole bunch of recommendations. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think it was a specific recommendation about having a land acknowledgement, but they kind of started after that. And that's what made them really popular widespread across Canada. Right. Cause it's like, it's like an easy, like out of all the recommendations in the TRC, it's like the simplest one probably. Exactly. And yeah. Um, it's kind of like, I'm also really interested in this idea of like the settler state kind of absorbing these ideas that are really radical at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Once these things like, so there's all these good recommendations in the TRC report, stuff like uh, hire more indigenous people largely, um, expand all forms of education into indigenous communities in the way that they want them there. Mm -hmm. And those are all really great. And then as soon as they, start to be implemented it's like they're absorbed into the logic of settler colonialism mm -hmm. and they lose something in them where it's like there's there's the the things that come out of them are not what was originally put into them right and so yeah i'm just yeah, like that makes sense if that's what the land acknowledgement came from right yeah um, like something that you can do and like feel good about it that you're like oh yeah I did this because like Truth and Reconciliation Canada said I should do it. That yeah yeah and um I was never called to do anything more it was just a recommendation. Yeah. And like we published these recommendations and then they kind of disappeared. <laughs> yeah they did and I I don't know they're still there they're still online. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think my my old school, I think they had them, they had them posted in like one of the main registrar's office or something. They had them up for a while, but I would doubt that they're still there. And what I, like, I'm really glad that they're, they were posted there, but where, how do we move into the implementation phase? It's kind of like we're at the point where if we say, if we can pick out the certain buzzwords or if we can say the right few phrases, we're exempt from the rest of it all. Yeah. And since land acknowledgements are such a, like, a physical thing, really, in the end, I just, this is where I'm stuck. I just keep circling it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's, that's it. Yeah. It is universal. Like, we all need a little bit of ceremony, and so, yeah. why not this one? So at the end of every episode, I wanted to try to put together a land acknowledgement to reflect on what I learned from each person I interviewed. I live in Toronto on Dundas Street. Recently, the street has been in the news after a petition called for it to be renamed. Henry Dundas, the first Viscount of Melville, was a politician in the 1700s who amended a bill to abolish slavery in order to delay this abolition for 15 years. This led to the continued forced labor of 630,000 enslaved people 
and for the slave trade to continue to flourish. The name Toronto has a history as well, most often thought to be an anglicization of the Mohawk word Tikaranto. Although it was thought that Toronto originates from a word in the Huron language that means meeting place, this suggestion is no longer regularly accepted, as it came from a historian who didn't speak any indigenous languages. It is more likely that Tikaranto referred to the fishing weirs in what is now called Atherley Narrows, north of the city between Lake Simcoe and Lake Kujiching. These fishing weirs were carbon dated to be 4,500 years old, the same age as the Great Pyramid of Giza. They were used by many First Nations, including the Huron-Wendat and Haudenosaunee, a confederacy which includes the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Seneca, Cayuga, and Tuscarora. They are now called the Manjikining Fish Weirs and are managed by the Chippewas of Rama First Nation. The French picked up the name Ticaranto and so Fort Toronto at the mouth of the Humber River was born. After the British took over, the name was suggested for the entire metropolitan area. Lieutenant Governor Simcoe believed that it sounded too native and changed it to York, but it was changed back in 1834. Ironically, Benjamin Vonday, celebrated in the north suburb of Toronto named after the same man, was renamed Simcoe Day in June of 2020 because Vaughn argued that freeing slaves in Jamaica would signal an end of all civilization. As mentioned, Toronto was, quote, purchased through Treaty 13. The Mississaugas were the main occupiers of the North Shore of Lake Ontario in 1763, after defeating the Haudenosaunee during the Beaver Wars. The British approached the Mississaugas in 1787 to distribute gifts of 1,700 British pounds and 149 barrels of goods. It was understood by the Mississaugas that these were gifts in order to lease the land at the very most, not as payment for permanent exchange. The deed itself for this tract of land remained blank, as no sale was conducted at this initial meeting. Here I'll quote directly from the Toronto Purchase-specific claim arriving at an agreement, put together by the Mississaugas of the New Credit. Quote, The only record which remains of the lands discussed in 1787 is contained in a letter written 12 years after the fact in 1798 by Sir John Johnson, head of the Indian Department at the time. And he says in this letter, 10 miles square at Toronto, and 2 to 4 miles, I do not recollect which, on each side of the intended road or carrying place leading to Lake Leclay, which is Lake Simcoe. Then 10 miles square at the lake, and the same square at the end of the water communication emptying into Lake Huron. This deed was left with Mr. Collins, whose clerk drew it up to have the courses inserted with survey of these tracks, were completed, and was never returned to my office." End quote. In 1788, a surveyor named Alexander Aitken was sent out to map the area and, after he traveled west of the Humber River, was confronted by Mississaugan people stating that the treaty had not included the land he'd stepped foot on. British authorities intervened and Aitken surveyed a few miles past Etobicoke Creek. In 1805, the quote, purchase, was revised in order to fix the original contested boundaries and include other land treaties that had been made in the area. It was at this point that it became known as the Toronto Purchase. It is important to note that the Toronto Islands, which formed a peninsula until a violent storm flooded and separated them permanently in 1858, were never included in the original deed, according to the Mississaugas. They were instead added into later surveys. Nonetheless, as early as the 1790s, buildings were constructed on the islands. These islands are considered to be sacred by the Mississaugas. In 1986, the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations entered into a land claims settlement process with the Canadian government in order to settle the dispute over the compensation and bloated borders. They are cited as the current treaty holders. This area is also dished with one spoon territory, an agreement made between indigenous peoples to peaceably share the area as hunters. 
The central tenants, although not having originally included settlers in the agreement, but are understood to extend to settlers, as some now live in the territory, are expressed through the metaphor of the dish with one spoon. We share the dish, so we must leave enough for others and not dirty the dish. The spoon is also an important symbol, as noted by Ruth Colazar Green in the Center for Aboriginal Student Services video mentioned earlier. She states that weapons, such as knives, unpeaceful language, or hostile positions, should not enter the territory covered by the dish with one spoon. The two-row wampum belt, also known as Gaswenta and the Tawaganshi Agreement of 1613, is also associated with the area. Dating back to the early 1600s, the two-row wampum was an agreement originally between the Dutch fur traders and the Haudenosaunee. It is understood to underscore all future interactions between the Haudenosaunee and settlers. The wampum belt itself has a white background with two purple lines of shell beads running horizontally through it. These two rows represent the independent and distinct cultures of the Haudenosaunee and settlers, which coexist but should not interfere with each other's affairs, which includes cultural practices. This wampum is understood to apply to this area, and the tenants to extend to all settlers living here. Many nations and peoples are known to have passed through and lived on this area. There is so much more history to learn about this area than I have touched upon in this land acknowledgement. This area holds histories of entire civilizations. This area was and is an abundant source of food, water, cultural practice, and inspiration. It no doubt served as the settings for people's childhoods, relationships, the honing of skills and talents, for learning, for growing, and for creating. I am here as a settler. My own ancestors are from the same place as many other white people living in Canada. England, Scotland, Norway, and Sweden. Despite their arrival after the foundation of the countries on this continent, my ancestral line, including me, have benefited from land theft and oppression of Indigenous peoples, whether it be through that land theft or by placing sacred value on white prosperity. It is necessary that we fight together to decolonize this place. That means understanding the way land use works in legal and planning contexts. It means reading about the history of the area and knowing what treaty obligations you must meet as you live here. It means listening to Indigenous elders, youth leaders, women, and community members, and really, truly hearing what they have to say. I stand in solidarity with the land-back movements, in particular the Wet'suwet'en people on the West Coast and the ongoing 1492 land-back lane encampment at Six Nations. Although we're living in a pandemic and money can be tight, donating to these movements can help. I've included links below in the show notes. If you live in the city like me, places like the Native Women's Resource Center of Toronto is also looking for donations of money, food, and clothing. And while getting out and gathering with people is really difficult during a pandemic, I want to encourage people to safely get out and support the ongoing struggles for justice across the land. They haven't stopped just because a pandemic has started. As treaty people, we have the responsibility to do so. And a brief note on the ceremonial aspect, because I really, really love it. I have a garden that I'm growing on my deck. Despite the fact that all the plants are growing in containers that I found on street corners, and the fact that the deck might just collapse on itself at any moment, things are thriving. I try to push myself out of bed every morning with the intent of completing one ceremonial thing in a day, which is watering the plants. As I've created this ceremony, I have started to get more interested in learning about the plants I'm growing. Some are native to this continent, and some are not. But they're showing me things, in particular that if one path of supposed growth doesn't work and you get pinched off, you've got at least two other paths to try. Or if you get a really intense infestation of spider mites, i.e. things have just gotten out of control, you'll need to trim back your growth for a bit, but you'll also be able to grow back more. Despite the fact that the constant noise of sirens and motorcycles is disorienting in the city, 
I know exactly where I am.